The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategies. He's got a phenomenal following and has a, a really strong way of communicating very complex topics in uh, easy, digestible ways. So, uh, Lynn, for those who are not familiar with your background, talk about who you are, what got you interested in markets, uh, and uh, what you're currently doing with your research. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so for people that aren't familiar, my background is a blend of engineering and finance. Uh, and so I've had a lifelong interest in markets, um, but my my initial career was electrical engineering, and then I went into engineering management and managing the finances of an engineering facility. And then eventually I transitioned into doing macro research. And the way that I do it is I apply basically systems analysis to uh, the economy. Uh, and so similar to how I would diagnose a, you know, a complex electrical system or other engineering system, I try to use similar approaches on, you know, financial systems. And that comes up with a somewhat different angle of looking at things than kind of the cookie cutter finance approach. I think that's out there. Um, and so, uh, I just do my best to provide objective independent analysis, um, for, for people. A lot of my content's free and then I also have a low cost, uh, research service. Uh, let's focus on the uh, the systems analysis point you just mentioned for a second, because I'm going to make the assumption, even though it's not something I've ever done, that electrical engineering and engineering in general, there's a clear link between knowledge, effort, and outcome. Right? There's probably less variability in the errors because there's a there's a cause and effect there. We know financial markets obviously can be can be quite different. It's a chaotic system where butterfly effects can be pervasive and throw any kind of thesis off. How do you think about uh, the dynamics in terms of market behavior where there isn't a clear link necessarily as to why markets are doing what they're doing, except maybe with with hindsight. I think it's basically about isolating probabilities. Uh, and so as you point out, I, I do agree that basically it's a more complex system than anyone can map. There, there are a handful of areas um, such as, you know, nutrition or climate or the economy that are just such complex systems, there's no way to fully model them compared to, you know, human built systems that despite being very complex, um, because they were built with human minds, they're, you know, analyzable with human minds. Um, whereas with these more complex systems, the best we can do is map out a certain percentage of the terrain and then try to isolate kind of the, like these if else points. Like if this happens, then this other thing's almost certainly likely to happen. And kind of to identify the bottlenecks and identify the 
pivot points of things that can happen. Uh, but it's all probability based. It's basically, you know, I think it, it takes a certain amount of humility to say, okay, here's the analysis. Here's the expectation. Uh, here's what would, you know, cause me to change that thesis or here's what would break that assumption uh, and kind of go from there. So it's about having a view, uh, like a structural view, but then also updating it, you know, week by week, month by month, quarter by quarter, based on ongoing feedback we're getting from markets. The term mapping the terrain is is an interesting one because I agree with you, right? You've got to be able to kind of have a, a macro sense to see what's happening on the ground. But the challenge, I think, with a chaotic system is the, the mapping doesn't necessarily sell, tell you the roads, right? So what I mean by that is this point I keep emphasizing that it's less about prediction and more about path sequence of returns when it comes to actual uh, portfolio management and money management. And I remember uh, a study I had seen some kind of psychology test that was done where a bunch of people were basically dropped off in a forest and uh, they were told, find your way out of this forest and here's a map. But they were told the map that they were given was not the map for that forest. So even though the participants in this terrain were told, here's a map that has nothing to do with the place that you're actually at, it turned out when they observed the participants that uh, they still relied on the map because they needed to anchor onto something. So I'm saying all that because there's a natural human tendency to want to try to look to history for examples that are similar to what's happening here just to anchor on to some kind of conclusion for how this might play out. Um, I've heard you talk about this before, Lynn, but before the audience, talk about your macro view in terms of how things have played out, uh, especially this year, and if there's any real corollary in history to not just the terrain, but also the roads on the terrain? So I think if people are unfamiliar with history, I've seen, for example, a lot of pundits, a lot of policymakers, a lot of analysts calling this period unprecedented. Uh, That's a word we've heard a lot over the past couple of years, whereas people that are familiar with financial history would would consider this anything but unprecedented. It's just that, that the precedents, the closest precedents, are not really within our lifetimes, or at least our adult lifetimes for some of the, the older followers of markets. And so we have to go back essentially to the, you know, the 1940s to find a similar environment. And, uh, you know, that, that quote that's either accurately or inaccurately uh, um, given to Mark Quain, Twain, um, uh, you know, basically the one that goes like, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, I think is the closest way to think about this. That there's no, there's no period in history we can say, okay, here's how it happened. And so here's how it's going to happen again. It's, it's saying, okay, here's a period in history. What is that? What is, you know, what happened there? Why was it interesting? How was it similar to the current environment? How can it kind of give us some sort of outline? But then also, what are the differences between now and then? And therefore, what are the most likely areas of deviation from then? And the reason I use the 1940s is because that was essentially the last time we had, uh, you know, this kind of one two punch of a popping private debt bubble, which was in the, you know, the 1929 crash. And then into the 30s, we had a, a you know, collapsing private debt bubble. Interest rates hit zero uh, for the first time in a long time. Uh, and then we started to get a rising populism. And then that rising populism contributed to global war, which then, in, in, you know, resulted in a huge fiscal response. Uh, and so the 40s, after uh, disinflation in the 1930s, the 40s were very inflationary. And that money creation wasn't from bank lending. It was from fiscal spending and, and you know, the central bank monetizing that spending. Um, and so if people ask, you know, I, I got the question before, if I didn't know there was a virus and I just looked at charts today, what would I, 
think is happening, I would describe it as wartime finance. That basically, you know, we had a similar popping of a private debt bubble uh, in 2008, 2009. Then we had a decade of, of relative stagnation. It wasn't as bad, obviously, as 1930s, different technology, different monetary policy, uh, no dust bowl, obviously, you know, there, there are a lot of differences. But we had this kind of stagnating period, rising populism. Uh, and then, of course, we were hit by the pandemic. Uh, we had a, a war-like fiscal response to it. And then now we actually have the breakout of, of some degree of kinetic war. Um, and so I, I view the 1940s as the closest parallel. It's also the only time in U.S. history where sovereign debt as a percentage of the economy is as high as it is now. And so we saw a very different response to that inflation from the central bank compared to what we saw in the 70s. Um, and so overall, I think that's the closest environment. Um, there are some differences, though. So, for example, back then, the United States was kind of in China's position. It was this rising emerging market. Uh, we were a net exporter. Um, and so in many ways, the United States looks more like the UK did in the 1940s, if, we're, if we were to be more precise with that analogy. Um, but then even then, of course, there are multiple technology differences, demographics differences, structural differences that make this period different. And, you know, when people think of inflation, they often think of the 70s. And that's that's the one that I try to somewhat shy people away from, because in the 70s, you know, that inflation was very much driven by bank lending and demographics. Basically, the baby boomers were entering their home buying years. Um, and so you had a ton of building uh, construction. You had a lot of bank lending. That's where a lot of the money supply growth is coming from. Of course, there was a fiscal overland top of that, the whole guns and butter program. Um, and so that was a very inflationary environment. The one, you know, but it was different. So they were, you know, debt was low. They were able to raise rates to deal with it. Um, just a very different environment than the 40s and that we have today. Um, the one thing I think we can really get out of the 70s, though, is is the energy situation. So in the 1970s, Domestic U.S. oil production peaked in 1970 after about a century of, of persistent growth. It peaked in 1970. Um, and so you had that money supply growth and that demand growth combined with the, a, a very real supply constraint. And so the United States became more reliant on foreign imports, obviously. Um, that opened us up to geopolitical risk and scarcity. Um, and so I'm finding a similar environment today where energy is the bottleneck for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, but then the, the monetary and fiscal side looks generally more like the forties than the seventies. And again, these, these roadmaps are not perfect, but I feel like, you know, if people are unfamiliar with history and are unable to identify the similarities and differences between those periods, then they're kind of totally flying blind. And they're going to view a lot of things as unprecedented and confusing when we have examples of history that we should at least be aware of to help guide us. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion. Yeah, no, and I think that's fair. I think, you know, 
from my perspective, when I say that what's happened before here has never happened before in history, I'm really talking more about the correlated drawdown of equities to uh, treasuries, in particular tenure. And I know this because I've tested this and I've got data from the Center for Research and Security Prices from Chicago. Uh, Booth goes into one of the papers that won the uh, 2015 Founders Award. But if you were to look in the 70s, as much as everyone, when they think about stocks and bonds, keeps talking about the 70s, you would not find a sequence in the 70s where you've had that incredible correlation where stocks are are drawing down just like uh, uh, treasuries are as yields are, are rising. It's hard to know in the 40s because there really is no data that goes back that far in time because there wasn't necessarily up to date accurate total return way of kind of backcasting how bonds behaved back then. Now, there's another interesting aspect of this, Lynn, talking about the 40s and the 70s, um, which is there was a structural change in the way the monetary system worked once we got off the gold standard. Um, and I do wonder if if that factors into any of these types of analogies with the 40s, because even though everything you mentioned, of, of course, is unequivocally true and there are parallels there, that seems like it's a pretty big differentiator to even understand that, that make that terrain parallel, so to speak. The, the main one that changed there was the structural trade deficit situation. So I, I factor that heavily into my analysis as it pertains to this current euro dollar, petrodollar system compared to the, the Bretton Woods gold standard system, because now the treasury is at the heart of the global financial system rather than gold. That, that's the biggest difference. Um, and so that's been a strong catalyst to force the U.S. to run these structural trade deficits uh, and to have these, you know, the, the positive flow of foreign capital into U.S. markets uh, and then our subsequent reliance on that engine continuing and the harms that come from having that engine continuing because it's not it's not a, a purely one way street. Basically, we we kind of, you know, draw down our manufacturing base to some degree. Uh, in order to have these these stronger capital markets, uh, which is, I think, a contributor to the rising populism that we're seeing today. Um, going back to the you know the Bretton Woods system, although that was a large change, one thing I would actually argue is that the, the financial system changed substantially decades prior to that. And that was actually the more fundamental change. So but by the time you got to the 50s and 60s, for example, even though the U.S. was officially still on this, this international gold standard, gold was not a constraint for bank lending. So money supply was growing dramatically, despite the fact that gold in the vaults of the Treasury was, you know, declining that whole time. There's they're basically banks. They never had a they never had a pile of gold that they checked and said, "Do we have enough gold before we can make this loan?" They didn't. They didn't have that constraint at all. So you had a, you already had a complete separation from the whole process of money creation and gold, and that you know got marked to market in the 1970s. But that was already decoupled for decades leading up to then. Um, whereas I think the more fundamental changes happened decades earlier when you moved from free banking to central banking and then in- increasingly abstracted the gold away from the whole process. So gold went from the banks to the central bank and then went from the central bank to the treasury. And it just got removed from the whole money, mo- like the whole money creation process, even when we we're still on a gold standard. And that's part of the reason why we ultimately lost the gold standard is because the gold was no longer a, a practical constraint on money creation. Even even the foreign sector, foreign central banks could create dollars essentially by lending. And that's, you know, the whole euro dollar market grew around the gold market. And so you had this increasing number of dollars and foreign claims on dollars. And those were foreign claims on gold. And eventually the United States severed that connection. Um, and so that was just marking to market a problem that was already uh, in place for the, you know, pretty much the whole duration of the Bretton Woods system. 
Um, and so I, I, I think that that, you know, that's an important distinction, especially as it relates to the differences in trade uh, deficits between the United States uh, and the UK. Uh, you know, like I said before, I think the United States looks more like the UK from the 1940s than it looks like the United States from the 1940s. Um, so it factors in that way. But I don't think it really factors too much into the monetary and fiscal policy angle. Okay, let's talk about the money supply versus supply chain disruptions as narratives that explain uh, inflation here. Because I've done a number of these spaces, and it seems to be it's always uh, it's because of supply chain disruptions, or it's because of money supply. But it's never a discussion around the combination of the two at the same time. Um, when you think about what's happened with this inflation? Um, would you give more weight and more credence to the idea that the Fed created it or underinvestment uh, in commodities created? Uh, so I, I pick a third variable. I would say majority of it was the fiscal side. Um, but I, I ascribe to the view that it's a combination. Uh, and so, I, you know, when I analyze 150 years of data among multiple countries, there are a couple of key things that have to happen for persistent price inflation to occur. One is that uh, in order to get a lot of price inflation, you need a lot of money supply growth. You don't really have environments where the money supply is just totally normal and inflation is spiking for no reason, right? So you have to have uh, a significant amount of money supply creation, either from bank lending or from fiscal spending, uh, basically large monetized deficits. So that's what's one important variable. Um, but then there are periods where you have a lot of money supply growth, but then you don't get a lot of price inflation. So then it, it begs the question, like, so what's happening there? Clearly, money supply growth is necessary but not sufficient in order to have broad price inflation. And so the other side is, is the supply side. Basically, how tight is our ability to expand our natural resource consumption or our supply chain situation? Uh, and so, for example, if you look at the UK, uh, over that 150 uh, years of data that I mentioned, the UK was already a developed country during that, that time, it had already, you know, filled up its land. It was already kind of uh, tapping into its natural resources. Um, and so you had, a, you had a rather tight correlation between money supply growth and price inflation uh, during that time. Whereas when you look at the United States, there were two big periods where you had a big decoupling between money supply growth and price levels. One was in the late 1800s. Um, and that was in large part because we had this whole untapped continent, really, to expand across abundant natural resources, abundant cheap land. Um, we, were, we were just tapping into new forms of energy. Uh, There's a rapid expansion in technology that made things cheaper. Um, and that, of course, impacted the rest of the world as well. Um, and so you had that combination of technological deflation and you had natural resource deflation. And so that was able to offset a lot of the money supply growth that the United States experienced uh, in the, the late 1800s. Basically, we had resource abundance um, and then another period of decoupling was in the really the past 25 years until very recently, uh, where we had a, a larger normal decoupling between money supply growth and CPI. And uh, I think the biggest reason for that was the very strong trend of globalization. Basically, you know, that money supply growth was offset by stagnant wages. And those stagnant wages were in large part, you know, geographic arbitrage. Basically, we there was a large pool of untapped labor in China and for, former Soviet states, uh, and that you know basically a billion people were were you know joining the the broad capital markets globally, and so kind of like having an untapped continent of natural resources, we had this like untapped continent of labor resources that we tapped into, and that was a very disinflationary force. 
Um, and so in my view, both the money supply growth and the supply side constraints are two very important variables to look at. And that includes the supply side includes natural resources, particularly oil as kind of the master commodity. Um, I, I think a, a big reason why a lot of deflationists and economists were blindsided by this inflation is because there are two folks on the demand side. If you were to ask them a year or two, a year or two ago, what's going on with commodity capex, they, they probably wouldn't have been able to tell you. It's just it wasn't a high priority for them to look at. And so I feel like that that was that's always a key variable of inflation to be aware of. Uh, and then two is the whole globalization versus deglobalization thing. And so as you know, China demographics are kind of tapped out as we enter this more you know Cold War type of scenario. Uh, I think that that very persistent period of globalization is is behind us, um, where it doesn't mean we snap our fingers and globalization's done. But I think that 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 level of disinflation is behind us now, and that that you know now that we're kind of in this more steady state environment or even partially deglobalizing, I think money supply growth is more likely to be met by inflationary pressures. Okay, I got a couple a couple of directions to go based on that. So one one area I didn't hear you mention is the, the, how the velocity of money plays into that, right? So velocity of money is necessary also for inflation, right? Money supply with velocity and velocity of money peaked in 1997, collapsed obviously with COVID. Uh, and that's been sort of a, you can argue one of the things the Fed has been trying to push against over time by just trying to make up for the slower velocity with just more dollars in the system. Um, what do you attribute that that collapse in the velocity of money to? And is there is there maybe another potential, let's call it black swan type of risk that suddenly that could pick up as inflation is already very elevated? Uh, so you mentioned that velocity peaked, uh, you know, that that 20 year ago period where actually if you look back at a 150 year chart, velocity was way higher, uh, you know, a century before that. Right. So we've actually been that was kind of a local top in velocity. So we've actually been in a 150 year persistent decline in velocity. Um, I have this chart out there that, you know, I, sh I show velocity for 150 years and then I show rolling five-year CPI changes. And there's actually very little correlation between velocity and inflation. Now, there is there is correlation in the very short term in the sense that you if you, during a year where you have a rapid decrease in velocity, um, as you saw, for example, in the very early 1930s, as you saw in uh, 2020, for example, you, basically what you're getting is the, the collapsing GDP. Um, and so you're unlikely to have significant inflation, you're, mo you're most likely to actually have outright deflation in that environment because that money's not being spent anywhere. Um, now, on the other hand, if you just merely have flat velocity um, and a sharp increase in money supply, um, you know, by definition, what you're getting is a lot of nominal GDP growth. And that could be real growth. It could be inflationary growth. It's often inflationary growth. Um, and so you can get these huge spikes in, in inflation even when velocity is totally flat. I mean, velocity in the 70s was not really higher than the 60s, for example. It's like if you look at velocity from the 60s to the 70s, it was basically flat, even though inflation was obviously radically different between the two decades. Um, and so I don't view, other than that, that brief correlation where collapsing velocity is deflationary, there's not very strong correlation. Um, and there are multiple factors that can cause velocity to structurally go down. Some of that's wealth concentration. Some of that is maturing economy. There's all sorts of reasons. If you look at Japan, for example, they have they have lower velocity uh, than the United States does. And so I, I don't really expect a huge upturn in velocity. And velocity is not really part of my thesis for inflation, um, other than that, like I said, there's that there's that brief 
sharp correlation during during deflationary shocks. But other than that, it's not a very useful metric in my view. Um, now, one way that you can get higher velocity is if you, ironically, if you have less wealth concentration, because it, you know, if uh, if someone who's worth twenty million gets another million dollars, they're not going to spend it. It's just going to be in their bank account. It's just going to, you know, it's going to be in their investments. Whereas if you know you you have a bunch of people with a five thousand dollar net worth and you you give out a million dollars to a bunch of those people, like spread out, you know, each each one gets another five thousand dollars. They're going to spend that into the economy. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, that's more inflationary on average, uh, than say, you know, having wealthy people get more wealth. Um, one more factor I'd point out is that velocity as we measure it is about real, you know, GDP, whereas velocity in financial markets, uh, has increased substantially. Basically the holding period for the average stock keeps going down. Uh, financial markets are a lot quicker than they used to be. And that's actually for a long time where we did see inflation asset price inflation. So the, the part where we actually did see pretty high velocity, um, you know, basically as, as wealthy people got wealthier and then they invested more and then they're fa- they move it around faster. That's actually where we did see a substantial amount of, of quote unquote inflation. Uh, it just that it wasn't in CPI, it was in asset prices. And I think now we're seeing it more in, in, in CPI. But again, overall, I just, you know, other than those brief periods, I don't view velocity as a huge variable to, to focus on. By the way, I'm glad you mentioned that point about the, the wealth concentration that, you know, the wealth gap is inherently disinflationary because of, to your very example, there's, you know, Zuckerberg doesn't need two airplanes to get around, right? Whereas if you give that money out to more people, you have more airplanes flying because people will be traveling. But that's something that never made sense to me about the MMT, modern monetary theory argument, because... I think one of the key tenets there is that uh, deficits don't matter, and if you want to control inflation, then you simply tax tax it away. Well, the problem is if you have that wealth concentration, uh, taxing it is only going to take it away from those that are not anyway benefiting it and not necessarily doing transfer payments. I, I, to me, it's always one of those strange dynamics that never made sense um, in practice. But let's um, let's go a little bit here to, to this point about uh, the deglobalization uh, trend. Um, which, yes, I agree, is, is an inflationary force. But one of the arguments that's been made for many, many years is that technology eventually replaces labor. So is there an, a case be made that the concerns over the end of labor arbitrage may be overblown because technology could could fill the gap, so to speak? I think in a long enough timeline, sure. If someone, if someone asks if I would be, what's my inflation outlook for the 2030s? I would say I don't know yet because we have to see what technology looks like then. Um, but I, I think, you know, my, my emphasis is focused on the 2020s. And although technology is still a disinflationary force, uh, that can be overridden by energy scarcity and other things like that. I mean, ultimately, that automation is also very energy intensive. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, five years from now, could that be could that kind of catch up with us? Sure, it, it certainly could. Um, but it's, I, I, you know, I wouldn't focus on automation or, or technology as, you know, something that's going to really radically change in the next year, two years, three years. Uh, it's something that, that's further out. Um, and one way to think about this whole thing is that, you know, productivity increases, basically technological disinflation represents our ability to organize, you know, matter, energy and, and labor in a better way than it was the years prior. And so for the most part, you know, inflation should be, you know, given, say, a constant money supply, we would expect slightly negative inflation 
year after year. Basically, our ability to um, make things cheaper it keeps improving. You can imagine, for example, we used to have people with manual tools farming. Uh, then, we, then we invented the tractor. So one person could do the work of 10 people. And then now we can have, you know, hypothetically, you know, one person overseeing a fleet of like 10 self-driving tractors, for example. It, it is our, our ability to, you know, say provide food for the world used to take like half the world to do it. And now it takes like 1% of the world to do it. Um, and so that, that's an example. And there's many like that of these very disinflationary technological forces that operate over long periods of time. There are, however, uh, you know, years or decades where you have a step back in productivity. And that could be from underinvestment in natural resources, for example. You know, our, our ability to source the the core ingredients to all of our, including all of our automations, but in all of our buildings, all everything we, in, you know, interact with is impaired for one reason or another. Um, also, geopolitical realities, you know, war is one of the, most unproductive things in, in the long arc time we're basically spending resources to duplicate things and you know break each other's stuff that's about as unproductive as you get and so that's a step back in productivity um and so there are these years or decades generally these inflationary decades kind of represent moving backwards for a handful of years in terms of our productivity and i think anyone that goes to the store now or goes to a car dealer and you know they just don't have what you want. It shows that basically our current systems are less productive, really, than they were a couple of years ago. Um, and I, I think that that can be worked out in time. I think automation and technology is a key part of that, but it's also about commodity sourcing and geopolitical risks. And so I think that, that that's a story for maybe later in the decade or next decade, whereas I think the story for this decade is more about those more immediate setbacks in productivity. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a, a ton of sense. Okay. I want to go back to a term you used, the the velocity has been in markets. And as you, the way that you framed it made me make the link that uh, perhaps a lot of the short termism that we've seen in financial markets and the velocity pickup there because of all this phenomenal momentum that pretty much stopped, I'd argue, back in February of last year, that um, that changed the stock market in particular from uh, a leading indicator to a more coincident one, right? And and you know, traditional investing, traditional finance would argue that the stock market is a discounting mechanism of future cash flows, but it's hard for people to uh, invest based on cash flows when they tend to just invest based on a chart. Um, I'm curious, how do you think about the wealth effect here? And if the stock market perhaps is more of a disinflationary or inflationary force, you know, than anything the Fed could do because this reverse wealth effect I think is real, but obviously it's not yet filtered into slowing inflation. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So I think the wealth and the wealth effect is a, an important variable. Uh, it is mainly a variable for the initially, at least for the top 10% of the population that owns the vast majority of financial assets. So for example, 
top 10% of U.S. own something like 89% of equities in the U.S. Um, and the other 90% is they own the other 11% of equities. So when you when the stock market goes down 20%, 30%, um, the immediate impacts are really impacting about 10% of us the most. Um, and like I previously discussed with the, with the topic of wealth concentration, we're not the ones doing a lot of the, say, commodity consumption. We're, we're, we're doing the, you know, the other types of consumption. Um, and whereas the, the bottom 90% are, are still responsible for the majority of consumption because everybody has needs. Everybody, you know, the, the, someone who's worth a thousand times more than someone else doesn't consume a thousand times more things just because they're still, they still have one body uh, to, to work with. Um, and so the wealth concentration effect, I mean, the wealth effect is real, um, but it takes time to trickle through because as people spend less, um, they also then, you know, hire less and then those people can spend less. And so it is this process that takes time to play out. Another thing is that, you know, we've never really had the stock market as this big of a percentage of the economy before. I mean, it, it hit over 200% of the economy. And so it used to be that the economy, you know, going up or down or really, you know, because the stocks would front run it, the anticipation of the economy going up or down would influence stocks. Whereas now stocks are so big that the tail can wag the dog that, you know, a, a declining stock market, a declining bond market were so financialized, especially in the U.S., but also elsewhere with, with certain, you know, countries with very highly valued housing markets that can really wag the dog in terms of economic activity. Um, and so I do think that the Fed trying to put the brakes on asset markets is a disinflationary tool, but it's just it's a very blunt one uh, and it's really you know, it takes time to trickle through and it's really directly impacting, you know, 10, 20 percent of the population for the most part. And it takes time to reach those other parts. And so I think I think the overall approach of trying to rein in demand in order to combat inflation is ultimately going to be seen as short sighted in the sense that, you know, as soon as we return to a period of growth, let's say we go into a recession and then policymakers are forced to simulate the inflationary forces would quickly reemerge if the supply side, especially the natural resources side, remains unaddressed. So I think ultimately we only return to a period of disinflation of disinflationary growth if we improve the supply side. Um, and so some of that takes time. So I, I would describe this as we have a structural inflationary problem going forward, but there are transitory factors overlaid on top of that. Things like you know, logistics problems related to Chinese lockdowns and Russia's war. There are these things that, you know, could end next year based on certain human decisions. Um, but then the the overall lack of capex in the natural resources sector is something that I think I think will take years. And that trying to rein in demand is kind of like holding a beach ball underwater where you might be able to get prices down for periods of time, but then they're ready to pop back up as soon as we try to reinflate. I'm glad you mentioned that distinction between the sort of 10, 20 percent that are impacted by markets, you know, and everybody else, you know, the 80, 90, depending on whatever metric you want to use, because you're right. I mean, the the, the asset that matters for the vast majority of Americans isn't really uh, the value of their stocks. It's more the value of their homes. So let's let's talk about the housing market here for a bit, because the Fed itself in 2008 basically alludes to the idea that whenever they talk about the wealth effect, they're talking less about equities and more about real estate, more about the value of, of homes. And you can argue that, you know, if you want to try to really slow down demand for commodities, you probably have to do it on the construction side at the margin, right? So there could be some 
some uh, interesting dynamics there. But but talk about how you're viewing the housing market. I understand your thesis around it. it's going to be zip code and location specific, but there are arguments to be made that the entire uh, asset class of housing of real estate probably is overall due for its own corrective period because there you have this mortgage rate shock here. I think it's it's in broad terms overvalued um, and that it's likely to correct in terms of sideways choppy stagnation for a period of time. Um, but of course, as you put, as you mentioned, it'll be zip code dependent. Some, some zip codes will keep going up. Other ones will go down. There's, there's obviously there's cyclical markets. There's more cash flow markets. Um, and I think overall it's like to stagnate for a period of time. One way to quantify how big of an impact that is. So that that's, as you point out, that's one area of the wealth effect that they can hit the middle class pretty hard. And so, for example, if you look at the case Schiller index, you know, the, the typical house is up like 20% in price over the past year. Um, and then also, you know, mortgage rates went from like 3% to like, what, like five and a half percent, 5.2% or something, you know, five and a quarter over that past year. And so if you actually, you know, if, if your mortgage is 20% larger and your interest rate went from 3% to five and a quarter, that represents something like a 50% increase in monthly cost for that house. Uh, even though the house price itself didn't go up fifty percent, the actual the, the 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 cost to actually buy that house with a mortgage um, is is up significantly. The same house, um, and so that represents either a slowdown in activity, which we're seeing, and it also can represent for people that you know have to buy that house. Say they're moving and they have to buy that house. That's less money that they have discretionary to spend elsewhere on the economy, and so you can see weaker retail activity and weaker other types of discretionary activity. And so I think that, that that squeeze on housing is a significant reason why we are entering an economic slowdown and why we might even be entering a recession at some point. Yeah, and and it's also why I have lumber and gold eyes, uh, for whatever it's worth, because it's not my opinion, you know, economically, and I know you've seen all this work too, Lynn, you know, Housing is a tends to be a leading indicator of recessions because of knock-on effects of the entire chain of activities that happens from construction to the actual uh, home being built, but and and in terms of credit creation with uh, home values, um, but also historically, usually when you have a massive tail risk event in equities, lumber in particular is weak in advance of that. And again, that's not my opinion. I can show that based on that uh, 2015. Uh, founders war paper of course there are always false signals in that right and that's an important thing i want to kind of talk about before bringing the audience i always make it a point that historically every major crash correction bear market is is preceded by either weakness in lumber and or strength in utilities and or strength in treasuries oftentimes they all kind of give the same message in advance of the conditions favoring the accident but not every time right there's always it's kind of like a equals b but b doesn't necessarily equal a so to speak um when you think about your macro thesis and going back to that point about systems analysis, uh, how do you try to adjust for periods where you might be in a false positive in terms of the variables that you're looking at? Because nothing is foolproof. No approach is ever infallible. And you've got to be able to be dynamic in a, in a mentality. But what makes you maybe pivot uh, your macro view to something entirely different? So one is that I try to map things in rate of change terms rather than absolute terms. And so I'm constantly monitoring are things getting better or worse from whatever level they're currently on. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm always super sensitive to false 
you know, turns. And so one thing I point out in the, in the, during the past economic expansion, uh, which was over a decade long, you had three mini cycles within that expansion. So we can define those as rising and falling PMI cycles, purchasing managers index cycles. They were roughly these three-year periods. And so we had these soft patches, which were kind of like near recessions. Um, and they didn't manifest in full recessions for one reason or another. Um, and so it's, it's hard to outright predict a recession ahead of time, but you can say, is economic data accelerating or decelerating? And you can further break that down into, you know, leading indicators, coincident indicators, lagging indicators. And say, you, in particular, you can say, what are the leading indicators telling us? Are they getting better or are they worse? Um, and are they, are they pointing severe or mild? And so it just, it comes down to having this, you know, step back, you know, broad macro view, this framework for understanding the world, but then also, you know, looking at these six, 12 month forward periods and say, what is the data telling us now? And then being able to adjust with that. And I think another way to deal with uncertainty is to not do these absolute portfolio changes. Um, And so, for example, I don't rapidly change the portfolio based on what's happening in, in these expectations, but I do tilt the portfolio. So I'll have more of a defensive tilt. I'll have more of an aggressive tilt based on my perception of the opportunity set. Um, and then as we you know, get more in one direction, I, I can dial that somewhat like a knob rather than this on-off switch. And so that, that's somewhat how I approach these inherent uncertainties in markets is basically just constantly mapping things, see, see how it's developing over time, and then having kind of this inherent diversification base which had been tilt in the direction uh, that I think that I think things are going, rather than go all in on that direction. Uh, so it's a great question. Yeah, there, I haven't studied the public perception in the UK during the you know the forties and fifties uh, as close as I have some other topics. So it's it's, it's not a subject I'm very familiar with. Probably one of the one of the books to be aware of, I think, is Ray Dalio's Changing World Order, and I don't agree with every aspect of it, but it, it kind of goes into mapping by multiple metrics as quantitatively as possible some of these rising and falling economies. And so you could see, for example, multiple metrics of the UK going down in that period while the UK, while the US was rising on multiple metrics and really hitting our peak really in the in the 40s, 50s, and 60s by some of these earlier metrics. And there are some that are again leading and lagging. Um, I don't have the charts in front of me, but for example, education quality tends to be leading. Um, and it tends to be one of the, the, the you know, the, the leading ones um, in terms of, uh, you know, strengthening or weakening um, kind of global powers, whereas the lagging one is actually the currency strength. Currencies, you know, because there's a network effect there that build up over a long time, that's not something that turns on a dime. And so generally the, the reach of that global power has already fallen significantly by the time their, their currency starts um, you know, being shifted out in favor of another system. Uh, and so I would recommend that book. Uh, again, there, there might be aspects I agree or disagree with it, but I think it's worth being familiar with if you're interested in that topic. Um, as to how the UK public in particular felt during the 40s and 50s, uh, that's just not one of my strong areas. So overall, basically, I'm going to be tilted towards value, towards real world things, things like pipelines, things like healthcare stocks, um, that tend to do better in these more inflationary 
types of environments. And my overall view has been that this will be a longer term inflation, but that it won't be a straight line. I mean, even in the 40s and 70s, you had rising and falling periods of inflation. Um, and so it's not it's not like I think just, you know, inflation is like this straight line up throughout the whole 2020s. I think there will be pushbacks. I think we're in the middle of an attempted pushback. Um, so you can get these disinflationary cycles within an inflationary decade. That's kind of how I, my base case sees this playing out. And I, you know, right now the market is pricing this as being very transitory. And so, for example, you know, tips aside, if you look at oil futures, you know, oil futures for 2024, 2025 are way lower priced than, than current um, oil prices. Um, and so the you know the market is looking at this as war related and reopening related and very transitory. And like I said before, there are some transitory overlays on this whole thing that can be you know altered one way or another by human decisions. Um, but I think that the yeah, so I think the market still believes it's transitory, and I think that there are there's still alpha to be had by. If someone's correct, that inflation is going to be longer lasting than the markets think, and that the Fed trying to rein in demand destruction is going to be insufficient to address that, and that that's going to end up, you know, they're going to end up being forced to reverse on that at some point with the inflationary supply side things still somewhat unaddressed. And so my overall approach is to remain overweight, you know, the natural resources sector, despite the fact that I do expect some violent pullbacks along the way. Um, and to overall kind of just, you know, focus on those more inflationary types of assets um, while, you know, using some disinflationary assets as hedges. Um, you know, I often like the joke that, that cash is the one speculative asset that I own because it's the one thing that I own that I know for sure is going to go down in the long run, but that I own it for periods of time because I expect it to probably go up in the near term. Um, and so uh, I, I think that's, that's how I'm approaching this is to have an inflationary outlook um, but then to be defensive at certain periods, as I expect, attempted pushbacks on that inflation. This, uh, this is where I want to get in on this, this talk around defensive assets and the disinflation hedges, as you as you alluded to. And that goes a bit to the prior point I mentioned, which is that what's never really happened before in history is this unrelenting uh, correlation in the drawdown of equities to treasuries and treasuries really are your sort of classic disinflationary hedge. Usually when you have high volatility in equities, again, not my opinion, when you look at actual uh, price movement and yield movement in higher volatility periods, you tend to see treasuries do well. There's a flight to safety trade and longer duration uh, treasuries, at least for a moment in time, tend to be uh, inverse to equities. Right? They tend to make you money in those periods of time. That's not an argument for the longer term aspect of you know, the interaction of stocks to bonds or stocks to treasury in particular, but in these fleeting moments of very high risk, treasuries historically are your safe haven because treasuries have not acted as the risk off safe haven in this, what I would argue is anomalous uh, period. Now, I'm saying all that because I want to get your thoughts, Lynn, on this idea that uh, will the relationship of treasuries reassert against equities in high volatility regimes if you are in this secular inflation environment? I would argue yes, because I've looked at it in the 70s. But what are your thoughts on sort of this idea that treasuries kind of get back to being a diversifier when it has been horrendous this year? It's a good question. I, I think 
I'd have two answers to that. One is that if you do start to get a disinflationary cycle within an inflationary decade, then I think that that relationship can re- reassert itself. Uh, basically, if, if they're successful temporarily in causing enough demand destruction and, and get a recession, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see these mid to long term treasuries catch a bid um, as investors perceive them as safer than some of the more cyclic assets out there. And so I think you, you, you just certainly have periods of time where that, that inverse correlation reasserts itself. Uh, but my second answer would be to zoom out and look at other markets. And for example, if you look at emerging market uh, recessions, um, they often have they often exhibit uh, basically bonds and stocks selling off together. Um, and that's generally because they're reliant on external capital. And that's because they often experience these sovereign debt crises. Uh, that developed markets have not really experienced since the 1940s. And so I, I think that one aspect of, of this anomalous period that we're going through is that this, you know the developed world's not had debt as a percentage of GDP this high since the 40s. Um, and the U.S. in particular, um, our, our sovereign bond markets have been very reliant on foreign purchases that have dried up, uh, in part because the dollar is so strong, in part because of geopolitical uh, differences, China's, you know, kind of announced years and years ago that they were going to be, they were going to stop being a buyer um, on net. Uh, and so overall, the U.S. in particular is exhibiting emerging market-like characteristics. And that's obviously not in every way. I mean, we, we, we're not relying on external currency for one, right? So we're, we're doing this in our own currency. So we're kind of like, if you view this as a lens of the U.S. is like an emerging market that happens to control its own currency. That makes some things less inconceivable in this environment. And so I would describe this as the first developed market sovereign debt crisis in many, many decades. And that can, of course, take different forms. I mean, you have the ECBs unable to you know, stop QE because you have you would have Southern European countries have their debt markets blow out like Italy. Um, you know, Italy has been entirely reliant. There's no foreign demand. For Italian bonds at these rates, and they can't you know, with 150 percent debt to GDP, they can't support very high rates. And so you've had the ECB monetizing that to try to keep spreads under control, um, although they can't really des- describe that out loud. Um, that's why when when Christine Lagarde's pressed, she always kind of defers and is unclear. Then you look at the at the Bank of Japan. I mean, they have you know 250 percent debt to GDP, and they're doing yield curve control, so they're pegging yields at 0.25% for the 10-year. And the United States is not doing any sort of formal yield curve control yet. Um, and so we're having this kind of move up in yields at a faster rate than some other markets. Um, and again, if you go back to the 40s, they, they did do yield curve control. Uh, so I think if, you, if they did not do yield curve control back then, you probably would have had a similar period where bonds and stocks were selling off together. Um, because at one point in the 40s, you had 19% year-over-year inflation, but they were just pegging the, the 10-year yield at 2.5% or less. And so the question, what, what, would, what would the 10-year have done in that environment if there was no central bank intervention? Um, and so I think that when we, when we look at this in the context of a structural sovereign debt problem, and we look at some examples of emerging markets, understanding their differences and their similarities, uh, this this period again is is not that unprecedented, even though it's it's uncommon. Yeah, no, and I will say I was tweeting that a couple of times last month. That the more I look at the dollar and think about some of these macro intermarket relationships, I put that tweet out. I'm sharing the space that I think there's a there's a sovereign debt crisis incoming. Uh, of course, the path and sequence is what's going to matter to get there. But uh, I'm with you on that.
It's a good question. Uh, I think obviously the answer is we can't know for sure. My base case is to see gold probably do pretty well this decade. Um, you know, by most metrics, gold went into a bubble in 2011 and 2012. Um, and so it had that massive consolidation after that. Um, and it, it's been in this general uptrend since, although obviously it's run into turbulence over the past year and a half or so. Um, but as you point out, year to date, it has held up way better than stocks and, and bonds um, and, and better than you'd expect from looking at real rate correlations, things like that. So there is clearly a bid for gold uh, that is pretty persistent. Um, and I think you would probably get a breakout if you were to have a perception of Fed capitulation, that basically that they reach as tight as that, you know, that they're going to be able to get while still having inflationary pressures just because the economy at that point is so weak. Um, so I do think that there is a case for a gold breakout uh, in, in the years ahead and that basically we, we could be in what is essentially a big cup and handle pattern uh, in the process of playing out. I also think if you if you zoom out, like, you know, the 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 firm Incrementum, uh, they're the ones that publish the annual in gold we trust report. It's a very good macro report. Um, and they're, they're kind of these, you know, big European gold bugs. Um, but they also incorporate Bitcoin. And what they do is they have like a fund that's something like 25 percent gold and 25 percent Bitcoin. And basically it's kind of like their hard money fund and they rebalance it whenever it gets out of whack. And so they kind of harness Bitcoin's volatility and outperformance while minimizing its its downward volatility. Um, and so if you have a basket of that, it's done pretty well, right? Because generally in these rising PMI environments, rising liquidity, Bitcoin's been a huge winner in the hard money space. I think it's taken some market share from gold. Uh, and then when you have declining PMI environments, withdrawing liquidity, that's generally gold's opportunity to either go up or at least hold up better than a number of other assets. Um, and so a fund like that has actually done pretty well. So hard monies have done well this decade when you when you consider the multitude of hard monies that are out there. And I think that's probably set to continue. Um, and I do think that we're probably going to see a gradual shift towards central balance, central bank balance sheets. You know, they've already been increasing their gold exposure and not really increasing their treasury exposure too much in the prior years. And I think that's probably going to set to continue. Uh, and that's partly because what we saw on, you know, in late February, where you know, Europe, United States were able to seize foreign reserves because if you hold foreign reserves in a foreign liability, um, that's not a very censorship resistant asset to hold. Uh, whereas having self-custodial gold um, or diversified, you know, foreign liabilities, that's a way to reduce that single point of failure risk. And so I think that the overall sovereign case for owning gold has probably increased in recent months. Um, when you combine that with negative real yields for, for most sovereign debtor in the world uh, and still, you know, long-term probably increasing money supplies for a lot of these developed markets. Um, I, I think the case for gold is pretty strong and I would just make sure that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to own gold without owning Bitcoin because they're, they're somewhat in competition now. And we've had this kind of the marginal market share has shifted towards Bitcoin in the past decade. It's probably a good name for the space. Anyway, I, so I, I perceive this as still being a declining PMI environment and still being in a risk-off situation. So as long as central banks are at least trying to round the margins, tighten into what is in the, in the data already an economic slowdown and potential recession, um, I, I think it does pay to continue to be risk-off. And I think that there are still bubbles um, in, in certain housing markets, in certain crypto markets, in certain aspects of the stock market 
that I still that I still think that there's air that has to come out of some, of some of those balloons. You know, on the other hand, I think that when we eventually do get central banks unable to continue tightening due to the economy being so weak, while some of the inflationary pressure is still there, you know, you can kind of see like currency devaluation could catch up some of these prices, right? So, so things can correct downward or they can correct sideways in time. Um, and it, it, different markets tend to do that differently. Housing markets tend to be less volatile. So they, they, you know, when they correct, they tend to correct sideways unless they get to truly bubble valuations like we see in some of these countries and some of these markets. Um, a general trend I've noticed is that in the U.S., um, our equity valuations for a similar sector tend, tend to be higher than the rest of the world. Um, the, the foreign sector has been very willing to buy our equities. Whereas the opposite is generally true for a lot of housing markets, at least outside of major cities. Whereas if you look at housing valuations in Canada, Australia, Europe, Southeast Asia, you know, China, a lot of similar properties are more expensive than you'd find in the U.S. Basically, the U.S. is very equity oriented and the rest of the world is very real estate oriented. Basically, as, as our money has been weak around the world, we've monetized these other assets. And for cultural reasons and for market structure reasons, We've, we've monetized different things at different degrees. And so a lot of this can be perceived as people monetizing things for lack of good money. You know, as their money has negative real rates associated with it structurally, they go out and they store value in other things. And if you do get a period of harder money, um, then you, you do get a sharp devaluation in those other things. Um, however, if they're unable to harden the money, um, then those other things can you know, either stay elevated or keep going up in the that depreciating unit, right? So those things might go down in gold terms, but they could still go up in fiat terms if you get an, a persistent enough currency devaluation. And that's something you see in emerging markets. Again, going back to the whole comparison to emerging markets, where when you have recessions, inflationary recessions in those markets, sometimes you'll see their stock market and their real estate market continue to go up in their local currency terms even as, of course, they're going down in dollar terms or gold terms um, because the unit of account is what itself is being disrupted. Um, and so I do think that there are pockets of excess that still have to come out in this market. And I, I still do remain risk off in general, um, but, I, but there are other things that I think have already been rather washed out. And I do think we're getting to a period where there are, you know, there are a number of things that someone can buy and own for the long term while acknowledging that there are other pockets that are still not worth touching with a 10-foot pole. So with that said, again, everybody, thank you for joining, Lynn. I always uh, appreciate you being a part of these conversations and enjoy the rest of your weekends because uh, if you don't enjoy life when markets are closed, which obviously doesn't include crypto, uh, what's the point? So thank everybody for joining. And thank you, Lynn. I appreciate it. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions.
Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.